forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, Doc, welcome back to another episode. It's great to be back. I'm still in the Canary Islands, but through the uh, magic of technology, this is not a week later. (laughs) It's a few minutes later. A few minutes later, but it's just nice to think that you've been in the Canary Islands for that long. So (laughs) it would be nice. So in our last episode, we talked about what sleep is, why we need it. And it turns out, as we saw, those are very complex questions because sleep is a complex thing. It's not just shutting down our body and resting. Our bodies are, are incredibly active during sleep, uh, almost as active as they are in awake, as when we're awake. They're just doing sort of different things, different processes and, and tasks that are necessary. One thing that you and I were talking in between the recording sessions about that kind of came out of our last conversation is when you're talking about the necessity of sleep and sleep deprivation, um, that a lot of the things that we do to ourselves are exactly the techniques that interrogators use in interrogations, like if they're going to interrogate terrorists. And I actually looked it up. Uh, It's the sleep deprivation is actually prohibited by the Geneva Convention as an inhuman thing to do to people because it's just as necessary as water or food. Yeah. And we're consciously, like we said in the last episode, we're the only mammal on the planet that chooses to purposely not sleep. Uh, we're doing this, but you know, it's, it's real subtle. You know, it's like, well, maybe I don't need that much. Maybe it's going to be this much. Maybe it's only six hours. Or, you know, the person that's waking up and saying, I only need four hours of sleep. They're probably, like we talked about last episode, there's a lot that happens related to the body in the first four hours of sleep. But what's related to the brain is going to happen in the second four hours. And so they kind of complete the body phase. And they're like, hey, I'm ready to go, right? And they, they feel like, I've got it. You know, I don't need that sleep. But they don't realize is they're not investing into their brain, which is going to comprise the last four hours of sleep. I usually use this kind of example is, is deep sleep or the first four hours of sleep, okay, which we're going to get into the stages in a second. But those first four hours that I'm working on my body is like the cash in my wallet, like what I have for tomorrow so that I can, you know, pay something if I need to with cash, right? But the second half of sleep, which involves a lot of REM sleep and dreaming states, which a lot of people neglect, that's what gets shortchanged the most with our choices to not sleep like we should, is what we're investing into our, our retirement or what we're investing into our future. Because that brain can function on some sleep deprivation, but it can't function the long haul without you investing into it every single night. And so many cognitive disorders that happen later in life come from the neglect of paying attention to the last four hours of sleep. You know, it's interesting. I, 
I was just thinking, you know, with you in the Canary Islands, I know we've both done a lot of air travel in our lives. And, and I used to do a lot of night flights, you know, yeah. cross country or overseas. And, you know, it's tough to sleep on a plane. And so maybe you grab three or four hours, uh, right? Mm-hmm. On a night, on a night flight, whatever, a red eye. And when you land at the other end, you have just enough energy. You've gotten enough two or three hours to be able to sort of get up out of your seat and, you know, grab your, your stuff and get off the plane and go to the rental car counter to check out a car, right? So your body can go, but you're just, you're just wasted mentally right? Um, for that day and maybe the next couple of days on the trip, right? Yeah. The whole reason that I brought up that we should do or start our discussion of sleep on this trip was I knew that I would be trying to deal with that. Um, and it was like, this is something I help people with uh, frequently is how do they, how to address these travel issues and the sleep deprivation that occurs, which has a lot to do with blue light. I'll share this one story before we get into the topic here. But um, there was a good art, there was an article, I think it was in the Washington Post a number of years ago when uh, the uh, Washington commanders, which were back then the Redskins, uh, were getting for, ready for a trip to London and they needed to get, they were going to uh, play in London the next week. And as anybody that watches football knows, those are always kind of difficult games to watch because everybody's so tired and uh, a lot of injuries happen. The, the games aren't always the best. Sometimes they're, they're decent, but they're not always historically the best. And so I've done a lot of work with Kirk Cousins uh, throughout his career and I said, hey, let's get ready for this, this game. And let's not get ready two days before, but the moment your game's over on the Sunday before. And so what we started to do was recalibrate his circadian rhythm to actually match the circadian rhythm of what he would be in London. And if you listen back to the last podcast, we talked a lot about blue light. So we brought these blue lights in that Kirk used in the morning. And every morning he would use them an hour earlier before the sunrise so that he could start to reacclimate to um, London. And then also, as we talked earlier in the last podcast, we know that it's very important when the sun sets, how that addresses our circadian rhythm. And so we would have him wear these special sunglasses or these sunglasses to block light later in the day so his system wouldn't stay on Eastern Standard Time. And uh, it was funny, a reporter was like, why are you wearing these sunglasses every day? You know, And he's like, I'm getting ready for the game. And um, so he goes to London. And I, I'm, not, I'm pretty sure it was this game they, uh, that he broke his uh, most passing yards in a game. And at that point, I think it was the highest number of passing yards at uh, a London game. And the interview comes back, interviewer comes back to him after the end of the game and says, hey, how did you do this? And he said, I've been working on my sleep all week long to get ready for this. And you're thinking, here we are, pro level. You know, what are the elite athletes in the world doing to get ready for the big games? And how do they perform at this highest level? And in this moment, Kirk summed it down to that one thing, which is I prepared myself by working on my sleep. You know, it's inspiring, but I I think about somebody who's listening to this that says, I'm just a sales guy 
and I have to get on planes all the time and fly to wherever to see customers or to go to a trade show or whatever it is, on, sometimes on short notice and fly here, fly there. And it, it messes me up something awful. And when I get there, I have to perform and I have to be able to be sharp and I have to do this. And then I'm flying off to the next trade show or the next meeting and wherever the four days later. Or I think about the, the parents mm. uh, of small children. We have a baby in the house and I never, I mean, the idea of getting eight hours uninterrupted sleep is, is a joke, right? You know, yeah. I'm lucky if I get a couple hours before I have to get up again. So this really does affect people, you know, sort of at all walks of life and levels. And some of us have more or less control over what we do with it. Yeah, it's uh, sleep and sleep deprivation are, they're no respecter of any, any level of socioeconomic status. Or, and there is so, it impacts all of us. And one of the best things that we can do is to focus on this sleep and put attention to it and become a disi- very disciplined with our sleep. Uh, it's kind of funny, but about 12 years ago, I remember having a discussion with my wife and we were talking about, I was, I used to work on the ICU a lot and do a lot of different things and I really didn't take care of my sleep. And I said, you know, what I want to work on is I want to become one of the best sleepers that I can be. You know, it seems, sounds kind of funny, right? It sounds like, you know, I want to work on being a sloth, you know, but that's not, that's not true. I, and the more I studied the science, I said, it's all goes back to sleep. And I would say well, yeah, that, but see, that ahead. implies, right. That, well, I'm saying that implies that misunderstanding we talked about last time where people think of sleep as, you know, downtime or unplugging, yes. but actually you're plugging into something else. It'd, it'd be like saying, I want to have good nutrition or I want to do, you know, I want to watch my, you know, physical strength and, and whatnot, you know, sleep is actually making yourself stronger. It's not just downtime. Absolutely. And you're making investments, investments into anti-aging investments into what's going to be there when you're 65, 70, 75, 80. Well, I sure hope my brain's going to be there. Right. And right. You know, it's sad, but I have worked with a couple different billionaires who have come to me in their 70s and 80s and they say, I got everything, or even their late 60s, I've got everything that you can imagine, but I'm losing my memory. I can't remember the name of my grandson. I can't remember how much I really have. And, you know, should I eat, you know, this meal today versus something else? Because I don't know if I have the resources to do that. And this person, super, super wealthy, right? But they've lost their, their capacity for their brain, which is their greatest asset to still work. And so many of us, we climb the ladder so fast and we work so hard and we make so many compromises on the way. And then we get to the end of this journey and that brain, which we need, isn't there for us. And I would say, I challenge your listeners, you have to invest in your brain today, not tomorrow, but today. And it starts with sleep. Well, what a great segue. So let's start with the architecture of sleep then. 
as you said in the last episode, sleep in some sense is divided into two halves. Mm -hmm. The first half is dedicated to physical recovery. The second half is to neural recovery. But within that, there are these four, right, distinct phases or stages, stage one, two, three, four, that occur in a, in a, in a full sleep cycle. Why, why don't you walk through those? Because it's fascinating what happens in those and the sequence of them. Yeah, uh, this is just really fascinating stuff, right? Uh, and uh, really take this in because this is so important. I always say that education is the bridge to change. And I think the more we educate ourselves about how this whole thing works, and we don't understand it all, but the, the more receptive we are to make conscious choices and changes that are helpful to us. But sleep, uh, we said earlier, is a poor description of what we do. Okay, we said that in the last pro podcast. It's so much more complex than that. And I do like this term or this phrase that you use, or how we describe it, which is sleep architecture. Adding that word architecture on there, just for me, I think explains it more. Okay, now we need to go in more depth, but I love that word architecture. Now, a fun fact for listeners to know out there is um, on the side, I have a builder's license. Okay, um, like why in the heck? Well, I periodically, I like to build my own houses that I live in and um, I have different family members and uh, friends that I've helped them build their houses along the way. But I just love building as kind of a, a side thing that I do. Like we're currently building a place in, uh, in Charlotte. But um, when I think of architecture, I think of a building process, right? A foundation, the walls that go up, the siding, the roof structure, the painting inside, the cabinets, right? It's not just there's a house. There's these stages that you have to go through in order for this thing to exist. And that is really a good description of sleep because many of us start our day with half-built houses <laughs> that don't have roofs on them, right? Uh, they don't have any siding on them. And we're wondering why we're getting, you know, we feel the wind or the cold <laughs> uh, throughout the day. And it's because our resources haven't been built up correctly. And so the, um, the, the physical side we talked about happens in this first four hours of sleep. And those primarily, you're going to see a lot of these uh, four stages of what's called non-REM sleep. Stage one and two, which tend to be more light, what's called light sleep. And stage three and four, which is deep sleep. And in that first four hours, you're going to cycle through. Uh, you're going to do 90-minute cycles where you're going to kind of go from stage one to two to three to four. Um, and then you're going to recycle again, one, two, three, four. And you're going to just keep recycling through. But the key piece is how much time are you spending in three and four, which is deep sleep? How much is the brain able to access these delta waves and theta waves? And that's where the real recovery happens. So many times, I can have so much mental stress from the day that I want you to think of stage three and four like kind of like an anchor or something that I need to weigh, get, be nice and heavy to, to anchor myself in. But because I have so much stress on, my anchor becomes very light because my brain is so encompassed with all this stress. 
that it's very hard for me to anchor in into stages three and four. And so then my sleep tends to be predominantly stages one and two, which is light sleep because my anchor doesn't hold. And now one and two sit so close to being awake in the brain that I experience something that's called WASO. That's a sleep term for wake after sleep onset. So if I'm vacillating in stages one and two a lot, I'm going to be popping out and literally waking up throughout the evening and have what's WASO. It's, it's common to have some WASO, uh, maybe 30 minutes. But I'll see some people, we do sleep studies all the time. I'll see some people with two and a half hours of WASO. And they'll say, well, I'm getting eight hours of sleep. Well, that's eight hours minus two and a half hours where your brain was awake. That's not leaving any room for stages three and four, much less what happens in the second half of sleep, which is the REM states, which is a totally different place that the brain goes into where it starts to restore itself. And these REM states also require this anchoring in into sleep, not just coming into it where I'm just vacillating between stages in one and two. So let's go through these four stages, stage one, two, three, four, and talk about what happens in them. In some degree, they're measured by the frequency of the brain waves, right, uh, during those. But there are distinct things that happen. So let's just walk through those, walk those through us. So just walk us through those four stages and, and what goes on in them. Yeah, so... Um you're really not going to get into the recovery of the body as far as an anti-inflammatory process and the production of uh, human growth hormone and testosterone until you really anchor in to stages three and four. And in the, in the EEG activity, you're going to see some really slow waves. You're going to see some dis distinct kind of uh, activity in the brain that's very characteristic of those. Okay. And if I was to take my whole amount of sleep, 25% of it uh, should be a combination of three and four. Okay, so that's, that's very important. I have a lot of people, hey, my Whoop or my Fitbit or whatever's telling me I'm getting 15% of my sleep is deep sleep. Well, a good place to go for is 25%. But I'm going to add this to that, okay? You measure sleep stages through EEG, <laughs> okay? The only way to define if you're in stage one and two accurately is with an EEG, an elect electroencephalograph that's showing specific indications of the brain patterns that exist in stages one and two, and then they're unique flip that happens in EEG activity for three and four. And so many times people lean into their wearables, okay? Wearables are good for probably giving you an idea of quantity of sleep. But because it's not an EEG, it's, it's creating an algorithm based on heart rate variability, a movement, a variety of other things. And it's trying to make a guess of what stages you're in, but 
it's very important for the listeners to know that is not a sleep study, what you're wearing on your wrist and on your finger, okay? I think they're helpful for keeping you accountable, but be careful not to assume that just because it says I got three hours of REM sleep that I actually got three hours of REM sleep because it's not an EEG. So what is going on? So stage one and two, the brain has dropped into what kind of wave patterns would those be? So you'll see some alpha waves. So think of frequencies of brainwave patterns. And you're going to start to see the brain start to slow down and then give you periods of other slower volume uh, frequency wave patterns that are going to occur. But it's not until you really get into stages three and four that you're really going to get into these delta waves, these theta waves that are going to be super important to promote the anti-inflammatory processes, kind of the detoxification of the body the restoration of the body, if I kept you from going into stages three and four, you would eventually get pretty sick physically because you have to be able to slow those brainwave activities down into these very, very slow frequencies. So we talked uh, in an earlier episode about the amount of energy that the brain consumes, that it is 2% of your body weight, but it's 20% of your energy consumption. So when the brain is slowing down during these stages three and four, this sort of deep sleep, is it then shifting that energy over to the metabolic processes to heal tissues and muscles and all these other things? Absolutely. Uh, You only have a finite amount of energy, right? And it needs to gear down into these slower states in order to be able to have those different systems restore themselves. That's super important that that happens during this state. But again, I would go back to what I'm doing during the day can dramatically impact the amount of time that I can stay in these stages. So we can read daytime EEG activity and look at, at theta waves in the brain. And that'll give us a good predictor of this person's not going to be able to get into deep sleep very well because their brain is running in such an overdrive state that it's going to find it very difficult to be able to go slow enough, like I said earlier, anchor in to get those deeper stages of sleep to happen. Yeah, after you go through this first four hours where you're cycling into deep sleep, you then start to make this shift in, it's like the body knows it's got enough of what it needs on the body side that it says, okay, we're ready in case the chase from the bear happens and you have to get up out of the cave. So now let's start investing into the brain. So now you're going to do this very unique thing where the brain is actually going to become alive and light up. So when you look at the EEG, It's absolutely amazing how much activity starts to happen during the the REM states, okay? And somebody who's a poor sleeper, that initial activity can actually cause them to wake up. And if they've been running in overdrive with their brain the day before, they might just re-engage that overdrive and find it hard 
to keep the brain in this REM state. And that's why so many of people that I interact with say, you know, I'm waking up at two in the morning and I just can't go back to sleep or 2.30. And if you pinpoint it, when you look at their sleep studies, it's like, this is right when they're doing the shift out of body restoration into the REM states, which you're also going to cycle. First, you're just going to get a little bit of REM and then you're going to have a little break and then you're going to get a little bit more REM and then you're going to get a little break and then you're going to get even more REM and the REM just starts to take over that last four hours of sleep. But like I said earlier, it's very important how my brain functions during the day and how well it's going to behave during those REM states to be able to get in them like they need to. And this is when we'll experience our dreaming. Dreaming will start to happen, a rapid eye movement. The body will remain completely motionless, so it can't move or act on. So it kind of shuts, puts a break on all the muscle systems and everything so that we don't go running around the house with our dreams driving us crazy. Um, but it sits there and it starts to work at these cyclings through the REM states in order to restore, recover, solve problems uh, with this stage of sleep. One of the things that you've talked about and the literature mentions often is that what's going on during this REM phase, and it's interesting, again, that the the brain sort of cycles down to give more energy to the muscle tissues and and organs, right? Then now it comes back and says, all right, you guys have been taken care of. Now it's my turn. The brain gets super, like you say, super active, a lot of energy and starts speeding up. And now it's going to sort of consolidate itself. It's going to reorganize itself. Defragging right? like, and stuff. It's like yeah. your computer at night downloading updates and uh, you know, sorting out its hard rate, defragging the hard drive or whatever. Because one of the things that yep. happens in this REM stage is memory consolidation, right? And I remember uh, you once telling me way back when, and I it, it stands out in my mind to this day because it was a great way to explain it. Uh, you know, I said, why, you know, dreams are super weird. And you said, imagine that you were standing there with a window watching all of this data uh, flood by as it's getting... Um, you know, uh, consolidated and there's little bits and pieces of information that are going by and you're just seeing little bits and pieces of information of things and memories all rushing by yeah. as they're being sorted and organized. And that's why dreams can be weird, right? Because your brain is like watching the defragmentation and reconsolidation organization of all of this data and memory. And if that doesn't happen on a regular basis, right, like our nightly sleep, Absolutely. those memories don't get consolidated. That's why we have memory loss over, over time. Yeah, I would say the number one cause of memory issues, cognitive issues, slower processing speed, uh, decline in different types of cognitive functioning are going to be related to REM, that REM sleep. And uh, I liken it to you go through the day with this little pail. And you're putting all these short-term memories into it, like things that are happening throughout the day, right? And so you're, you're not going to be able to keep all of those things. Or, or your brain's going to say, why would we keep all of those things? Like, do I need to 
remember the white car that drove by me as I was walking my dog. No, you don't need to remember that. But it's going to kind of assign things that go into the pail with a little bit of some type of emotional content by activating something called the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system. So when you go to sleep at night, now it's going to empty out that pail of all those short-term memories from the day. And it's going to decide what the things are that it needs to etch onto your memory, uh, particularly your hippocampus. Now, there's things about memory that aren't just stored in the hippocampus. We actually have kind of a reconstruction sometimes of our memories that involve our entire brain. But the hippocampus does hold a lot of memory storage, and it sits right next to something called your amygdala, which has to do with a lot of emotions. So I want the listeners to think of something from your past that you remember. Like if you go way back, something that you remember, it's likely to be connected with an emotion. And that emotional pairing is what kind of anchors it in or etches it on your hippocampus. It needs those emotions to trigger because it's not just going to keep every random thing that comes in there. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember every conversation I had, but I remember um, conversations that were, you know, emotionally significant in my life, even though they may not have been actually the most important things. Like, I wish I could remember some things that turned out to be long term, like it would be really useful if I could remember what this person said. But I remember kind of random things, maybe because they were, yeah. You know, you think of like a sporting event that you saw, right? You know, you remember the field goal going through the uprights, but what was going on in the second quarter, three minutes in, I don't remember. You know, that was 15 years ago, right? But you hold on to those things that have emotional context, right? And that's why even when somebody's losing their memory, they'll rehearse many things that happened 30, 40 years ago that were very emotional, like meeting their spouse or you know, a graduation or something. And they'll repeat that over and over again because that's all they can kind of hold to. But in REM, guess what starts lighting up? The amygdala and the hippocampus, okay? So now you've got this memory storage, this emptying of the short term into the long term for memory, but you also have emotions tied with that. So think about what dreams are like for you, okay? Uh, you, they typically are going to have a lot of emotion with them. When you look at the brain, sometimes it's more alive or more activated during REM than it is when it's awake. And why is that? Because so many different emotions are having to kind of pair themselves or join themselves with those memories so that they can now stay and stick. It's kind of this chaining together through emotion and experience that happens during REM. And many times the content may be very odd, but if you really look back at it, the emotions are very similar to something that you've probably been dealing with, right? Uh, a fear of loss, you know, or uh, an uh, anxiety about not passing in an exam, you know, or forgetting to write the paper that you were supposed to, all of mine have to do with education, right? Because these are the things that I still dream about 40 years later, right? 
<laughs> me, me too. All my, I have all these bad dreams about yeah. not turning in a paper or not being prepared for an exam. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why, but I have those. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I finished all that. You know, I wake up. I'm okay. I'm okay. Right. But I always, I always have this dream where the red, I'm about to graduate and the registrar calls <laughs> me and told me, tells me that I forgot a class or I didn't do something and I can't graduate. Yeah. That's a recurring exactly. dream. So that, I mean, that's an emotion, right? And that may not be what you experienced today or yesterday, but I can guarantee you there's something going on in the last few days that if you had that dream, the emotional content is probably very similar, similar, not being prepared for something or feeling like, you know, somebody's going to spot something about me that, you know, uh, I don't want them to know, right? Um, and so there, the emotion stays the same, but the content can be, you know, really different. And that's okay. That's what happens in dreams. The other thing, there is a theory about dreams that many times we will dream one level above what we're currently experiencing so that our brain can be kind of preemptive if things were to go south. So, and that's why sometimes when people are going through something very difficult, their dreams become even more intense because the brain is engaging in the self-protective mechanism of um, you're anxious, but during your dream, I'm going to make you even more anxious. So should it go to that level, this isn't new territory for your brain, that your brain won't just you know, completely shut down because it doesn't know what to do. The dreams kind of act as a, a preparation. And I'd really like our users to think about you usually think of your start of your day being when you wake up in the morning. What would happen if we kind of reframed it and said, the start of my day is when I go to sleep at night? Maybe that's the beginning wow. of it all because my brain is getting me ready for the next day. And when we look at studies where you give people a problem, and if you give that to them during the day and they have eight hours to work through that problem, and you give another group the problem right before they go to sleep and they have eight hours while they're sleeping. It's the group that sleeps on the problem that has greater success than the group that was just wide awake on the problem for eight hours, which is quite fascinating to think about that our brain is literally like solving the next problem before we even experience it. That is interesting. You know, you think about, I think about certain times when maybe I've got a big day ahead, a project, something that I'm writing or working on, and I'll kind of lay down at night and start thinking about what I need to accomplish in the morning. And I sometimes wake up ready to go, like knowing what I want right. to do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is, this is uh, maybe a time to, I hate to bring it up because I know that if I bring it up, you can do 30 minutes just on this topic, yeah. right? But uh, I want to bring up, Ambien and these kinds of sleep aids. And maybe this is a good moment because I know you've got a lot of um, strong thoughts on this in terms of how it interrupts all of the things that you're talking about in negative ways. And, and to your point about starting your day with it, do you want to start your day drugged? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. We're probably going to talk more about this down the road, but let's go back to our sleep architecture, right? Um, 
when I go to build the house, at the beginning stages, I have to use some pretty big equipment, you know, like sledgehammers and backhoes and that kind of stuff. But later, as I get to the end and I got to put my cabinets up or the trim work around the house, I don't bring in the sledgehammer. You know, I don't stick the backhoe through the, the window, right? You know, to clean up my mess. I have to do it, you know, in a way to protect the structure, right? And while it would be really great, and I would love that you could have a one size fits all chemical that addresses this, that isn't realistic when you understand that this is a very complex architectural process, sleep. And so what Ambien tends to do, a lot of these different, not just Ambien, but other sleep aids, um, prescription sleep aids, is they act more like a, a tranquilizer or something that, like if you were going to go in and get surgery, right? That, you know, it could be three in the afternoon and they say, we're going to operate on you. And they say, hey, count, count down from 10 and I'm asleep by seven, right? But I'm not really asleep, right? I'm, I'm sedated. And they can literally operate on me. I'm so sedated, right? But that's not sleep because we also have this other state where I want, I want to get into deep sleep. But I also have this next stage where I need to be really awake in my brain. And so you've got this one tool that works for maybe getting you to sleep and getting some deeper stages of sleep. But that same tool isn't going to help you deal with this very activated, engaged, you know, needing the brain to be super alert stage of REM sleep. It's just not going to cut it. Well, I mean, those, yeah, those sleep aids like Amia, that really is to what we talked about in the last episode where people misunderstand sleep is shutting down. That really is just shutting down. Exactly. So all of those tasks that we talked about, like you have to go home and pay your bills and do your laundry and everything so you're ready for the next day none of that happens. You just shut down. Yeah. And that isn't what it takes to build this sleep. And that's why, again, education is the bridge for change for our listeners. You got to understand this is a very complex thing. This may be the most complex thing you ever do in the day in an entire 24-hour cycle is sleeping. And one pill is not going to address all those different stages correctly because each one is doing something different. And when you move out of those first four hours and you go to those next four hours, you need that investment to be spot on because all this work you're doing every day for years and decades, you better have your brain at the end of this thing. Or why were you even doing it if you can't remember your grandkids' names? So at the end of the last episode, you said to our listeners that there, if, if there was one thing they could do immediately to start improving their sleep, it was to manage the amount of blue light they get and when they get that blue light. At the end of this, when you talk about sleep architecture as a takeaway, what can our listeners take away from this and do immediately to begin improving their sleep architecture? I think the, the main thing is to become very structured in how you're building this building that we call sleep. And when you move it all over the place, okay, one night you're in bed at 10 and you're waking up at 
seven and the next night you're going to bed at midnight and you're waking up at six. These tasks require specific amount of time. It takes a certain amount of time to build a foundation. It takes a certain amount of time to throw up walls. It takes a certain amount of time to put a roof on this thing. And they need to occur in line with some of the different hormones that we talked about in the last cycle, in the last episode. And we know that melatonin has its peak release at 12 p.m., 12 midnight. Okay. So if it, if at midnight, I'm still on my phone looking at Facebook, I just missed out on the, the best chance I have to getting into these stages of sleep. I should have been asleep for at least two hours before I hit that peak melatonin. So for the listeners, let's get some structure about our sleep. Let's try to allocate at least the eight hours plus a little time that's going to take you get to sleep and a little bit of wasso that's going to happen. So maybe it's eight and a half hours, but you're doing that same structure. Okay. Oh, one last thing. Let me add one more thing. Let's do this. Okay. I'm going to call it our 30 for 30. For the next 30 days, I want you to add 30 more minutes of sleep to your day. Okay. Well, we'll do that. And I can't wait to come back and have some further episodes about sleep in the future because, I mean, it feels like we've not even scratched the surface of all that's going on and all the things that we need to do. Because as you say, there's, you know, when you talk about food, water, sleep, respiration, I mean, these are the building blocks of the human being, the human life. And we cannot perform at our potential. We cannot go out there and accomplish the things in the world that we want to accomplish, whether it's our jobs, our families, professional sports, whatever it is, if we aren't taking care of nutrition, cardiovascular, sleep, these kinds of things. And it's so much a part of regulating what happens with our bodies. And so we're going to come back and talk about this more and more and more in the future. But if it's something that you want to pursue and you want to pursue it seriously, consider checking out Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience, which are there uh, to help you, whether you are a corporate executive, a student, a school, or a professional sports team. Royer Neuroscience and Inner Armor are there to help your team achieve the most that they can achieve. Well, enjoy the Canary Islands stock. And uh, this uh, episode will air a number of weeks from now, but there is a really, really big football game tonight. And I hope you'll get to see it where you are. You may have to cut into your sleep cycle just a little bit for that one. <laughs> yes, that'll be hard to watch that one tonight. I think it starts at 12.30 a.m. <laughs> well, thanks, Doc. We'll be back with you soon. Okay, we'll see you. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.